Hi everyone! In today's episode, we're discussing all four volumes of New York, New York by Marimo Ragava, and we go full spoiler! This is where I'd normally tell you to go read the comic for yourself, but before you eventually do that or continue listening to this episode, I want to list a myriad of trigger warnings. This manga collection, and therefore this episode, contains mentions of the following. Homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, racism, misogyny, drugs, physical abuse, sexual abuse, police violence, murder, pedophilia, and incest. There may even be trigger warnings I've missed, because quite frankly, this is a doozy. It's impossible to discuss this comic without mentioning these themes, and if that's not something you wish to partake in, we absolutely understand. Take care of yourselves out there. You can find us at tumblr.com slash theartofpod, at theartofpodcast on Twitter, and at theartofcomicspod on Instagram. Lovely, here we go. Field, a comic creator who is very excited to get going with this episode because it is going to be wild. Hi, I'm Joss, artist streamer, and just like Paul, very eager to discuss this and a little bit scared. Anybody who has picked up this book and read it since we had our introduction to Yaoi episode last week, thank you Jaws for that, that was amazing, knows exactly what we're talking about if you've read it in the meantime. Yeah... Yeah, let's just get into the blurb territory. Sure, yeah, so I've been a very bad boy and I haven't prepared a blurb myself. I'm going to read the blurb from book one, which reads, Police officer Kane Walker has gone to great lengths to prevent his co-workers, family and friends from finding out he's gay. But when Kane meets Mel Friedrichs, he realises at once that his whole world is about to change. For the first time, Kane wants more than a one-night stand, but a relationship carries risks, discovery not least among them. Battling with others' expectations and biases, and his own, Kane struggles to balance his desire for secrecy with his feelings for Mel, at a time when being out could cost him dearly. Set in New York in the 1990s, this heartbreaking love story makes its English debut in a beautiful oversized omnibus edition. Nostalgia is a risky affair, and it can render a revisit downright painful. New York, New York lingered in my teen mind as this sweet love story, yet reading it again as an adult felt like a kick to the shin. This beautifully drawn smorgasbord of harmful tropes had me questioning just how unreliable sentimentality can be. Rose-tinted glasses? More like blackout curtains. Yes. <laughs> so you've gone straight in there with the, uh, with the Yikea warning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I am fascinated. You've already hinted at this, but I know that this is something that you read when you were younger and have come back to. And this is something that I've read for the first time ever over the last week or so. What was it like? Well, it was devastating. <laughs> oh, so I'm so sorry. I texted you this past weekend and I told you that it might be a combination of my current IRL situation because I'm stuck in construction hell and the fact that it was 30 degrees in Norway that slightly altered my frustration. So I was probably not in peak condition to be more forgiving about just what a fucking trash fire this is. But <laughs> right. even after the temperatures had cooled down and the construction work wasn't driving me batsy, ugh, yeah, it, let's just say it didn't magically get better. <laughs> yeah. It was painful to go through this because every other page felt like a tonal whiplash. There was a particular page. It was page 49, before which everything felt pretty normal. Kind of what I expected with a little bit of silliness, 
your average Yowie tropes. And then page 49 comes along. And <laughs> let me tell you, and I laughed out loud at this. <laughs> As we covered in the blurb, the main character, Kane, has met Mel in a bar. And they're having a go at a real relationship. This is Kane's first ever proper relationship. We've barely even seen them had sex. They've not really discussed it much. We don't know all that much about Mel, except for that he doesn't like the idea of sleeping around or Kane being unfaithful. And they're having their first lover's argument. There's something serious going on here. And Mel's like, right now, you're the only one for me, Kane. And then a train passes by. So he can't see hear something that Kane has said to him. He's, so he's like, what? And Kane says, you're the only one for me. In that case, let me fist you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the following up in square bubbles. It's kind of hardcore sex that I really hate. It just... Oh my god, that threw me for a loop because there was absolutely no explicit description of any kind of sexual activity up until that point. We just vaguely got the impression that the characters had sex and at no point is any of the sex anywhere in here particularly explicit. We tend to see them from the kind of shoulders or torso up sort of gasping at each other. It, <laughs> it just came out of nowhere. And at no point had the author introduced that this was an issue, that they were struggling with one expecting more from the other in terms of how hardcore they go in the bed. And I think that that tonal whiplash that you were describing is perfectly typified by that. And really, it just underscores most of the reading experience. Quite apart from being sort of full of problematic stuff, it's very oddly paced. Did you did you feel that? That is it? one of my very first notes is odd pacing, long lingering moments, and then sudden fast forward. It feels like someone watching a film and being impatient. Yep. Just get to the good stuff. Or... <laughs> this is what I consider good stuff, so let's stay here forever. And hoisky poisky, when we get to book two, woohoo, do I have some comments on that. But it's, it's already present yeah. in book one. There's bouts of time where it feels like time almost grinds to a halt, and then it's suddenly six months later. And you go, yeah, okay, I guess. that's. There's a lot of info in between here in the beginning relationship I would love to have known, but I guess that's just insignificant. I don't know if you found this, but there are, uh, there are segments in the first book and in the second book later where the story settles down to one pace for quite a while. And in those moments, I nearly got into it. And then it kept on ripping me back out again. As someone coming this, to this for the first time ever, that was my general experience with this. It did enough to make me care emotionally about the characters by the end, and even to have a couple of touching moments where I was genuinely like, oh, that's lovely. Because there's something odd about all of this. It's so chock full of problematic stuff. It's so chock full of incredibly difficult material. Even if it wasn't problematically handled, it would still be extremely difficult. Yet at the same time, I feel like the author thinks that it's very important and very meaningful and very moral to be writing all of this. <laughs> Do you get that impression? Uh, trying to tackle why this was made the way it was made. I think I would have to be a much more intelligent person than I am and much more researched. I can only base it on the stuff that I already know about Yaoi after the previous episode that we did. But this one quite literally just embraces all the difficult themes and more than what we mentioned in the Base Yahweh episode. It feels like there was no editorial finesse here. There was no outside voice going, hey, 
maybe this should have been done differently. And this is something that I really had to keep reminding myself of while reading this, that I am reading this with 2023 eyes. So it's gonna look like stale as fucking cheese really quickly. Because the times have changed so significantly since then. Not necessarily changed nearly enough, but just in the way we handle a lot of these topics. It wouldn't have been released this way today if it was new. Let's imagine that a similar story, although I don't think we would have gotten a similar story out of this, had been written by a gay man from New York in the 90s. And it was full of problematic subjects and problematic handlings. At least it would have been a really interesting eye into that scene, into how it felt to be queer at that time. We touched upon this a little bit in the last episode. People didn't think about trying to write stories that demonstrated what a good life should be or demonstrated how good people should behave to each other. That wasn't that wasn't sort of like the raison d'etre of, of storytelling. And I, and I feel like some people do think of that as why you should write or how people should think about writing. And I know that there is a lot of debate about that in editorial offices across the world right now. You know, what is storytelling? What are the duties of a storyteller? And it's complex. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah, this goes hard. I've said this before. I'm not about gatekeeping stories. And I think difficult stories definitely should be told. You shouldn't always aim for happiness or being contempt. You're perfectly fine in making stories that leaves the reader feeling downright awful. But to me, and that's something I wrote in my notes, is that I can, for the life of me, not tell if these are the views of the author or the character she created. Yes, that was really interesting trying to detangle it as I read as well. Sometimes I felt like she was writing flawed characters that were really developing and changing. And that was most obvious, like in the character of Kane's mother, oh, who boy. starts out outright homophobic to the extreme, and then slowly becomes sort of like okay with it. And to a certain extent, Kane, who has, the, the book is explicitly has a lot of internalized homophobia that he deals with over the course of the story, which is unusual. That brings me around to something that I wanted to mention about this, which is that I think of Yaoi as, some, uh, as a genre that doesn't really actually care all that much about the gay experience. A lot of its problematic side comes from either completely steamrolling over what it really would have been like to be gay, or by just fictionalizing it to the point where it bears no resemblance to real life. However, this tries really hard to actually portray the life of a gay person in the 90s in New York. And that's part of the problem, I think. Again, I feel like we're going to sit and say so many times, like we talked about in the last episode, but I mean, this is just, as I say in my blur, a smorgasbord of everything that we touch upon and more. It aims for realism in this weird way especially in book one in book two realism be damned but in book one it tries for realism to a certain extent and because it is made by a japanese woman in the 90s it just does not hold up any stable ground it feels like this person has done no research into the gay experience tmtm like the actual gay experience this is realism with the biggest filter of fantasy and female desire on top of it yeah and very you know if we do see it from that lens that there's certain things that are being written about because the author is almost sort of fetishizing them then it becomes super super problematic rather than just slightly problematic and, and i think that that comes out in 
Mel's character, the sort of main love interest, because the amount of shit this character goes through, honestly, I've never seen anything like his backstory combined with the events in the actual story. And given that this is effectively a tale about two people entering their first long-term relationship and trying to make it work together, and there are some really touching moments if you were to filter out everything else that happens to them. But this character comes from a background where he's sexually abused, and then he's raped multiple times, once in the first volume, and we'll get round to the rest of it. He's actually treated reasonably well, and I say reasonably well, by his partner in comparison to the rest of his life. But there comes a point at which you have to ask the author, why did you put this character through so much shit? But the thing is, I really want to stop you there and say that, yeah, sure, reasonably well compared to the rest of his life. But one of my first notes was just, Kane sucks, three exclamation marks. (laughs) For someone who has hollered so much about wanting unlikable characters and then get the chance to see them grow, This guy is such a challenging character for me to get behind because as a follow-up to the scene that made you laugh so much where he's like, let me fist you! The next page, he then goes fucking postal on Mel and he's like, I knew you would say yes to it because you just want to keep me around. You're super afraid of losing me. And then he fucking punches him. And I'm just like, the amount of times that Kane punches Mel is really uncalled for. It is so uncomfortable. The violence depicted between two men is just not cool here. Is that not the only time? I don't remember no. him doing it again after that. I'm pretty that. sure oh, he, okay, right. I'm pretty, I didn't take notes, but I am pretty sure that he, he hits or slaps Mel several times. If it's not downright a punch, I seem to recall, because Kane slaps and punches several people, including his mom. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so I was very uncomfortable And my issue with Kane is that he is so addicted to sex that he is willing to threaten his boyfriend with violence just to make a point just how much he needs sex. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the more problematic angles on the gay scene here, which is that Kane is, through the eyes of Mel and through several other gay characters, painted as, like, your typical gay character from New York at the time only interested in casual sex and only interested in tons of sex. Now, I wasn't around in the 90s as a gay man. I don't know whether that was true or not, but something about it feels inauthentic. That's all I can say. Yeah, and I have no issue with a character who just wants to shag. There's no problem with that. I think that's realistic. But my issue is when, in the first book, when Mel gets raped by a robber because Mel is in a store picking up coffee beans, for the cafe he works at, and then the place with the coffee bean distribution gets robbed because it's proved that the coffee bean place imports narcotics because, of course, it has all the underrunning cliche fucking themes from the 90s. So, of course, there's drugs. Two robbers know of these narcotics, burst in, shoot several people, so Mel is on the ground next to a dead person, and then one of the robbers is like, I'm just going to rape you while we're robbing this place and you're just going to get along with it. (laughs) First off, I'm not laughing because this is funny, by the way. I'm laughing because it's uncomfortable. Mel is not offered any therapy after this incident, which most people, in my humble opinion, should have therapy after. But Kane even fucking shames him for not wanting to have sex with him immediately after this. And I'm just like, my guy, your boyfriend got sexually assaulted. I don't know what to tell you. I think at this point in the story, Kane's meant to come across as a bit of an asshole. But it goes so hard that 
it becomes really, really difficult to then follow on with his sort of uh, self-discovery that he uh, goes through as the book continues. If you're willing to ignore that intro and kind of give him some time afterwards, it is an unusually complete arc of self-discovery for a character who is that nasty throughout the next two books. Or at least it felt like it to me reading it. I I don't know whether you were sort of perhaps the experience of being so disappointed in it just super highlighted everything wrong with it at every turn. No, because I am very much capable of separating my disappointment through nostalgia and my just pure disappointment from a reader perspective minus my relationship with this. Since I keep requesting character arcs, this one doesn't feel earned because I don't believe in the character. I Yeah, yeah. I believe that people can change. I have to believe that. And I think someone can be this fucking rotten and become a decent human being. I don't think that's too much to ask for. But there's just something where we've got no indication in his insight until he suddenly, like, page blee blah blue into the book is like, oh yeah, I have a lot of internalized homophobia. He just thinks that to himself out of the blue without ever <laughs> having touched upon this topic before. And that's what I mean. Then he suddenly this just decides that, oh yeah, I'm struggling with that, as well as my, for some fucking reason, intense hate for Jews. <laughs> Which is just one of the many weird things with Kane oh, Walker. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was, I mean, the, the fact that I can forget about that because there was so much else is hilarious. He's just a real, like, I mean, he's your classic, classic toxic main character. And in, in that respect, it was surprising to see him go through any period, uh, series of realizations. And I think that that's probably what I was trying to get at. I would agree that it's not earned, especially given that the only thing that gives him the platform to learn is his steady relationship with Mel. And the only thing that makes his relationship with Mel steady is the fact that Mel himself is portrayed as this... Saint. Undyingly sweet saint, yeah, who's just obsessed with Cain and thinks he's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to him and is willing to go through literal hell on earth and only ever thinks of Cain, even in the middle of being sexually assaulted. He's just like, oh, Cain. Oh, no, Cain. Yeah. And again, I can't stress this enough throughout this episode. I'm not laughing because I think this is funny. I'm laughing because it's so fucked up. It gets to the point where the depiction of these things sort of is so divorced from reality that there's not you can't really treat them in a particularly serious way, if that makes sense. Or if you, or if you do, you'll just do nothing but rant at the book. <laughs> yeah, but there again comes the issue that I feel like the author portrayed this 100% sincerely. Yes. And that brought me back to thinking a little bit about a comment that I made last episode, which is that sort of despite the problematic themes of Yaoi, I do feel like it at least took me on the first deeply faltering steps towards at least understanding that there was a whole life behind somebody who was gay. I thought of it as sort of like, oh, there are just people who are gay and that's a thing. I never imagined what their lives were like. I never imagined what it was like to be gay because I was sort of like a very, very young straight person and in a very sheltered life. This book really, really tests the limit of that, I think. I too grew up relatively sheltered because Norway is a fuck all small country. And we, even though we like to pretend we're super progressive, we're really not. I too think that at that age, when I was a teenager, which is a million years ago, Yaoi did just the same for me, but now I think in the current climate, this book is much more harmful than helpful. And 
I'm very glad that mm. my takeaway from this as a teenager was the very few sweet scenes, and that's what lingered with me for some reason, and then I just erased everything else. If you do compartmentalize and just keep all of this around, and you think that it's completely fine and normal for gay people to hit one another and have sex right after being sexually assaulted and being really emotionally unavailable for their partners, among a myriad of other things, then that's a really bad takeaway to portray on all gay people. Yeah. I haven't even got to all the bookmarks I've left yet. Page 13. It's when he first sees Mel. And there's a picture of the two characters. You know, he's gazing at Mel and Mel is rendered all beautifully with like roses surrounding him as if actual roses follow him around his head in real life. And the dialogue is just, sweet Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It's so not subtle. But I, funnily enough, I had a note on this page and then you saw my photo on my book. I should post this on social, what my books looked like after all my notes. So I just had to- (laughs) Sweet Jesus. I had to become a little more selective, but I will say that my note on this page was, ah, yes, the Yahweh flowers. And it made me really happy seeing them. Mm. This early in the book, page 13, I haven't had the chance to cringe my teeth out of my mouth yet. Literally in the next scene, there's a bit where he's actually sort of walking along and it's as if the flowers are following him, which I thought was wonderful. Do you think that the kind of the Yahweh flowers has been an influence on your own use of flowers in in decoration in, in your own art? 100%. I had a realization a couple of years ago. Every now and then I go through a process of having to... I kind of have to recenter myself because every now and then in my creative process I get a little lost. For example, as I've discussed with you this year, I noticed a tendency to overwork my work. So instead of maintaining the fun and lively background of my animation and what I initially gravitated towards, I tried to be very quote-unquote serious with my art and make very pretentious illustrations in a way. And along that line, I lost myself a little bit and lost my voice. But every now and then that happens if I haven't checked in with myself. And a couple of years, I went through the same thing. So I went, hold on, let me go back to when I was a teenager, when I loved drawing, when I, way before I developed this overly critical voice and just self-indulge 100%, what were my muses? And that's when I started rediscovering Yaoi because I had a long dormant period where I was, you know, you know how it is. I was embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, that's cringe. And oh my God, I can't believe teenage me was such a fucking loser. (laughs) So I had a a period between my 20s to my 30s where I wouldn't touch Yaoi with with a fork. Then I pulled back fake because I've kept, uh, and I'll talk about this more in our fake episode, but I have my original fake collection from when I was 15. I pulled it out of my shelf and I flicked through and... Immediately I was hit by all the flowers and I remember this trope because this is a very reoccurring trope in Yaoi is the beautiful flower panels. And I went, hold on, I used to love this. This is a little kitsch, it's a little dorky. I wonder if I can implement it in my own art and pay homage and still make it my own. So yeah, 100%, that's, that's absolutely where my flowers are from is Yaoi. Ah, okay, well, I did... Uh, it- because it, it really reminded me of your art, actually, that panel specifically. So I wanted to ask. A lot of this, this sort of like very, very decorative sort of representational background that you get, especially in Yaoi and Shoujo, but also in Shonen in, in different ways, comes from the practice of using screen tone, which often had these patterns pre-drawn onto them. It would be cut out and stuck onto the artwork, literally as a way of sort of speeding up the process of making manga. And I actually have a page mark on page 15, which is 
just the next page where all the way to the left of the page there's just white and then this I don't know if it's supposed to be like a mistletoe or something just on the very bottom of that open column and I love those elements they provide nothing to the story they just make the page pretty and gives a breather I personally really love that. What do you think of it? Yeah, this is something I wanted to ask you about. It's quite a recurring thing where a page is extra thin and there's just a little spot illustration on the sort of gap down the left sort of vertical empty space. It struck me, having worked on a lot of comics from an editorial standpoint, as something to do with the original publication format. Like there was originally an advert there or something, or there was originally uh, something taking up that space in a magazine. And in the publication, they've just grabbed a piece of artwork or the, the author has provided a little spot illustration to drop in just to use the space elegantly enough that it feels deliberate. Now, I don't know whether that's the case or whether the, it really is that I think maybe you'd have to count the pages and see how regularly they occurred to see whether they're being used deliberately or whether, they're, whether they were a kind of a regular publishing feature or something. Yeah, I wanted to ask you whether you reckon that was a kind of a deliberate storytelling thing or not. Yeah, I honestly have no clue. You pointing out that it can have been for ads makes 100% sense to me. Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit because it's in the very beginning of the second book. It's on page 22 and 23 in the second book. It's after they've gotten married. And there's just two pages of quiet storytelling. And it reminded me of The Walking Man because I wish there was so much more of this in the comic where you could perfectly read the story elements of the characters without text. Yes, and I think that that sort of highlights something that this book is quite weak at it's just dialogue i never really felt like the dialogue was particularly natural in this what do you mean you you didn't immediately gravitate towards sweet jesus (laughs) i did not (laughs) and this is a beautiful spread yeah charming and it contains everything that is effective and sweet about their relationship and that made me want them to be together in a little microcosm which is nice it was this battle of sort of as i was reading the parts that betrayed them being sweet together were so effective that they almost overcome my wish that kane would just fuck off and that mel could find someone nice (laughs) it felt like coming up for air after drowning for pages and pages and i just swallowed the breadcrumbs whole i was so grateful for this tiny little meal of kindness and it did um it was enough overall i think to make me feel kind of like oh yeah they're lovely they're lovely together in in places and i think that's testament to exactly how effective the art is because it really is beautiful. It, it really is. And there's a page mark on 37 in the first book where they first have sex together, I believe. It's the perfect illustration of Yahweh sex because it's just a little bit of hands cut off at their torso holding one another. And then there's flowers and a cityscape beneath them. There's nothing explicit whatsoever. They're a little sweaty. That's like the horniest it gets. Yeah. But that's the kind of illustrations of sex that I love. I don't need to see penetration and I don't need to see genitals. I'm just very happy to see two people being intimate and loving being intimate with one another. And it is a beautiful illustration. I really like the kind of the focus on the intimacy and the way that it's almost like it's your quintessential cheesy 90s sex scene that you might find in a movie, complete with the cutaway to the city, but done in this wonderful montage that blends together really nicely in one moment. Yeah, super appreciate the art. 
and it's funny the art it, it does it's one of those styles where you can tell that the it's like the author has majored in drawing pretty boys <laughs> and then when they have to draw anyone else especially someone with facial hair it just looks a bit uncanny like a baby with a beard but i will say i do think his police boss is pretty believable he is one of the few yes adult adult characters where i'm like oh he actually looks like a likable adult man if anything, I think the police boss is probably the most sensitively handled character in terms of his attitude. You can tell he's not entirely comfortable with being around or talking about gay people, but he tries his best to overcome it, and at no point is he horrible about it. I 100% agree. I think he is definitely the, the realest character in this entire universe. He keeps saying it himself, I'm very old-fashioned, and I think he's just stuck in the ways of old. But then he clearly is working very openly about his issues. He is accepting of Cain. He doesn't make it a big deal, but he also gives him the advice that, just so you know, other people in this office aren't going to be as accepting of you. So I suggest keeping it on the down low. And today you would say, oh my god, your boss doesn't support you, big, big bad girl bitch power, whatever. Like, I don't know what the kids say, but anyway... He wouldn't have been as likable today. You can tell that he he 100% supports Kane. And there are situations where the other officers get rowdy down the line. I believe this is in book two. Where he tells them to fuck off. Like the boss is like, piss off, go find something else to do. Yeah, that, that was really nice. And there were a couple of moments where characters are treated like that. There was probably one of the most... In a book that, that tries to be very meaningful about gay acceptance and about changing culture around being gay, it often falls flat. But there was one moment that I thought was actually really sort of touching where Kane's father, who was a teacher, describes mishandling the first time a student ever came out to him. He says he remembers telling the student, it's okay, you can be cured. And then realizing with a horrible pit drop later how awful that must have been to hear and how that helped change his attitude and recalibrate and so on. And that struck me as incredibly authentic in a book that really struggles for authenticity. You're so right. That is a scene that stuck out with me too. How the dad is surprisingly supportive of Kane's sexuality while the mom is downright a hag. I had a note where I just wrote, Fuck this mom, because I was so angry. I was so annoyed at how turbo trash she is. She doesn't even try. In, in this stage of the book, this is towards the end of the first book, Kane and Mel goes to visit his parents. He has finally come to terms with the fact that it's going to be him and Mel, and he wants his parents to meet Mel and accept them into the family. And the dad is like very quiet about it, but not in a malicious way. And then the mom just flips her shit. She just goes to Thundercunt Town and doesn't get off the train. She's so unelegant about all of this and so insensitive. Yeah. She's just like, oh my god, my son isn't this way and you bewitched him, you harlot. Like, that's basically her language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so weird. And sadly, I have heard stories that are like that from real life. People's parents just being, as you put it, turbo waffle which is you know really upsetting for anyone who had to go through it that whole segment of the book where they go to meet the parents it just felt like an entirely different book to me it was like i was being thrown from one novel to another especially when we get onto the second novel within the space of about 20 pages sometimes 
So rather than just my impression of Kane being like, oh, what an asshole overall, it was like sometimes I was reading an asshole and sometimes I was reading a different character and there wasn't really a connection between the two. It didn't really feel like they belonged together. I've left a note here on page 165. When he decides to sleep with Mel's ex, despite the fact that their relationship is going pretty well there and Mel has been very clear that he doesn't like casual sex or Kane having casual sex, I left the note saying... Um, what the fuck now he keeps on changing? It's not like he's a character who is flaky or anything. It's just almost like he's a different character from one page to the next. One moment he's hitting Mel for no apparent reason whatsoever. And then the next moment they're having the most wonderful sweet time together. And sure, there must be people like that out there. But I've never met them. This is sounding so weird because it sounds like I'm I'm going, uh... Actually, real people need, like, super visible threads to be the way they are. But it is just like you say, as if he goes through a character change. There's no believable connection between the two personalities. When he decided to sleep with Mel's ex, that, just for the record, listeners, this ex is the reason why Mel at one point tried to commit suicide. I'm not saying that you can ever blame suicide on someone else as a very, as a slippery slope, but I can safely say that if my partner told me that they had been in a really difficult point of their life and considered ending it because someone was being so awful to them, I think it's safe to say that I then wouldn't sleep with that person. (laughs) Yeah, and there's just no hesitation. It almost just like smash cuts to them having had sex. And I was just like, I'm what the boy. What? (laughs) Yeah, you you go like, what's going on here? The book would lull me into a false sense of security. And then there would be one of those moments. Um, Another example is page 109, where you've already covered the fact that Mel was raped during a very traumatic robbery that he was caught up in. And then we get to page 109, where it is just revealed that it was Kane's partner all along who did that to him. Yeah, his police partner. And he was did it because he was jealous of Kane. Just the most terrifyingly flimsy <laughs> reason for a character to do something so extreme. And he's at this point, he's got Mel tied up in his bedroom and gagged and is pointing a gun at him and is about to stab him. This book is off the chain. I don't know how to describe it. It's unhinged. Yeah, I was reading it next to my partner and (laughs) she was like, what the hell are you reading? Because every now and again, I just go, what? What just happened? Kate was wondering what the fuck I'm introducing you to. Uh. Yeah, the, the sudden reveal of Kane's police partner being the one that raped Mel during the robbery and then decided to hold him hostage later on to kill him because he's jealous of Mel's relationship with his police partner. It's just, it's so bizarre. It comes out of nowhere. There's no point where the story openly shows the fact that his police partner is interested in men, even trying to do it subtly. There were times where I went, ah, they talk about women together because that's what bros do. And then Kane just goes along with it. The police partner also goes along with it. And I had an an initial going, oh, maybe they're both gay and they're going to bond over this. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Instead, he's going to end up killing his police partner because he's a trash human being and a very unhealthy portrayal of suppressed gay rage. Like you do. Like you do. The portrayal of like being a police officer, I don't know how horrible it can be in the police force. It's just 
insanely disconnected from real life as well like the things that they can and can't get away with in the 90s in in the new york police department i mean the police gets away with a lot (laughs) oh but what i mean is it's just it's just the wrong stuff up until a certain point anyway when the author maybe sort of changes their mind about things it's almost like this lovely pally chummy place to be (laughs) Where everyone's young and attractive. (laughs) It really wears the 90s glasses of the police being the good guys. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was certainly raised on trash TV, like CSI and and NYPD Blue and Pacific Blue and all this nonsense that was basically just indoctrination into how fucking great the police is. It took me years to unroot that and realize that, hang on, the police are not the good guys. And we were force-fed this propaganda to believe that that was the case. Right, and this book is clearly influenced by those kind of shows more than anything else. And other things. Page 194 I've got open at the moment, where having had absolutely zero inkling that either of them are in the slightest religious, they suddenly start praying together. This also came out of left field for me. Yeah, and this was another moment where I was just like, what? Where? Who? (laughs) It would have been really nice representation to see gay Christians because, of course, they've always been around. Again, it's just suddenly there towards the end of the first book without any big hint of the character being very religious. And somehow for a book about gay men written by a woman, it manages to be quite misogynistic as well. I don't know how it manages that. That doesn't surprise me at all. Misogyny is so ingrained in women to this day. I had to undo so much misogyny as I grew up. It gets imprinted on you by everyone around you, and especially as a woman, you're always told that you're lesser than. And then you just adopt that as the de facto truth. And then you start portraying that in your work. You've never challenged that idea. And to give an impression of how that expresses itself in this book, it's not until page 82 that we even see a woman at all in this book. Not a single background character, not a single main character. And this is just somebody who minds a store. There are more female characters in the second book who are, like, marginally better handled, but, uh, yeah. But that's also very typical of Yaoi, is the absence of women. And this is not my personal opinion, but this is just very true when it comes to Yaoi. There's no need for them, because you're not gonna have any sexual encounters with them, so what's the use of having a woman there? Right, right, and that gets to the heart of that kind of problem with a lot of 90s media, where women are only framed by their sexuality. And yeah, I'd not thought about it that way. Another character that I liked surprisingly much, but then of course he had to end in this trash fire of a 90s arc, was Gersh, another police member at Kane's work, who is also, because apparently everyone at this police station is secretly gay, but, <laughs> but he's also a closeted gay man, and he lives with his wife and daughter, so he's not willing to give up that life because he loves his child, and to an extent, he also loves his wife. And for some reason, Kane keeps harking on that. No, 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 he's bisexual. And I'm like, that's very vocal of you, but pretty sure Gersh himself identified as a homosexual. It even becomes evident that 
after the child was born, they never had sex again. Like, Gersh and his wife never had sex again. Make of that as you will, Kane. Whatever, dog. But <laughs> anyway, he starts with this very tough character. And we explicitly have to know that he's Jewish because Kane has a lot of fucking gripes with him being Jewish for some reason. It's never explained where this weird-ass xenophobia comes from. Then Gersh warms up a little bit in the few times he's present in the comic. And then suddenly he just dies of AIDS. And you're sitting there going, okie dokie, I guess you... I guess. <laughs> Again, he's a, he's a perfect example of the... I think the author trying to shoehorn something that she sees as authentic into a story with so many inauthenticities in. You have to know the gay scene... In the 90s, AIDS was just such an a incredibly present and terrible thing to have to deal with. But to see it handled so kind of clumsily and amateurishly in this, is, it's a shame. Yeah. Do you remember back in On a Sunbeam, we had this discussion where I've sadly forgotten the name of the character since, but there was this episode of a character putting this terrible turf, basically, in her place for being like awful to one of the other members of the group and like misgendering them. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about how this didn't feel earned and it felt very tacked on. And there's kind of a similar situation in this book where the mom visits a friend of hers and the mom is just basically going, oh, my son is gay and my life is over and I'll never have grandchildren. Wah. And then this hella woke ladies from the 90s just goes like, oh, 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 there's no problem with your son being gay. How delightful. Blah, blah, blah. And she is basically <laughs> mansplaining queerness to the mom. And it's just like... It's it's a sweet sentiment, but again, it feels so ham-fisted. Yeah, yeah. And funnily, I, you know, I can imagine that that actually almost, because it was between two straight women, or I assume straight women anyway, that similar ham-fisted scenes have played out in real life, <laughs> that you don't actually learn your lessons from somebody who's experienced the thing that you're learning about. You experience it secondhand from another person very much like you. I think I've probably had that kind of experience before. It did, that whole scene made me chuckle though. The sentiment is very nice. It's just so, again, like everything else are so weirdly handled. Um, <laughs> this book is making us unpack so much. I knew this episode was going to be like this. I knew <laughs> too. <laughs> After having read both of them, I went, mm, this is going to be a behemoth to edit. We're just gonna derail so much. And I, I personally don't mind because I think if we were very flippant about this, I'm sure there's people out there who's like, oh my fucking God, it's a Yowie from the 90s. Can you chill? Yeah. <laughs> to you, I say, I don't know why you're still here listening. This must be very deeply frustrating to you. So, you know, go outside and enjoy summer or something. But also, I think if we were really flippant about this and just went omega lol to everything, I think that would be quite disrespectful to everything that this manga tries to encompass and tell. Yes. It's a lot of really gnarly stuff. And I know that in book two, I'm just going to let... If you think I've been... That I've not been holding back, this is nothing compared to book two, because book two fucking derails any kind of sanity, and it made me lose mine. <laughs> Jaws's review, this book made me lose my sanity. <laughs> Zero out of ten. But in the first book, if I just... Honestly, full disclosure, when I, because I started reading this so much before you, when I was done with the first book and then started reading the second and recalled just where this train wreck went, I was almost tempted 
to go, we should just do book one. But then I remembered you had, of course, spent money on both of this. And I kind of also really <laughs> wanted to talk about it. I was like, nah, we'll, we'll just go through it and have a blast. But it's going to be a fucking long episode. In the first book, I felt the need to detangle a lot of this. At its core, volume one and two of New York, New York, really, it tries in and fails at making this very sweet, relatable story. And had it been released today and had someone go to the author with proper critique and saying, hey, if you iron this out and you just leave this at the cutting room floor, I firmly believe it would have been actually a cohesive, sweet story. But the second book, no fucking chance of that, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for real. I can't tell whether it was a lack of editorial oversight or actually too much editorial meddling, because sometimes this is what editorial meddling looks like when the author just desperately wants to do a specific thing and then the editor's like, no, there's not enough drama here. Like, this character needs to be in a gunfight right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, like, some of the double takes just maybe, or, you know, like, oh, haven't, didn't you realise that everyone from America is really religious and Christian? You better put some praying in here right now. I cannot tell. But agreed, yeah. You could recover something really touching from this and it nearly... It nearly won me over on a couple of moments. Just nice little things. It's it's lovely at depicting the beautiful every day of a relationship. Uh, there's one particular thing, and I, I think actually Mel's in a horrendous situation at the time, as he usually is. But he's remembering the things that he loves about Kane, and it's just a little montage of of sort of like, oh, should I get a cup of coffee for you? Oh, it looks like it's about to rain, and the, or them sitting down on on a sofa or or something like that. I can't. I didn't make a note about it, but. It, it reminded me in a really lovely way of the gentle everyday side of a relationship. That felt lovely. It's such a whiplash of a book. Honestly, I feel like I've been in a car crash. I felt like I should have been wearing a kidney belt reading this. <laughs> I feel like we're rapidly ready to jump into book two. But I will mm -hmm. say, to leave book one on a positive note, my last note for this book that I want to talk about is page 263 and 262, they're still visiting Kane's parents, and Mel encounters a childhood friend of Kane, who previously has been very rejecting of Kane's sexuality when they went out for a beer together. And then he meets Mel by the fence of Kane's parents. He's just being, well, really homophobic, really not nice. He's basically just like, Kane's mom accusing Mel of being this bewitching harlot. They're giving Mel a lot of credit in this book, I'll say. Like, <laughs> fine, he's beautiful, but holy shit, like, no one holds that much power. So Mel, in a very calm and collected way, says, the man you consider a friend and the man I love are both the same Kane Walker, which I think is a very nice thing to say to someone. That's, that's what you always want to say to someone being awful to you. And then he yeah. goes back inside, walks into Kane because uh, Kane is already home. Kane is just trying to start trivial chit-chat, but Mel embraces him. Kane asks, is something wrong? And he says, no, 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 not really. Like, it's clear he doesn't want to talk about it. But then they exchange intimacy. They're just, like, being really close to one another, sharing a kiss, and then Mel ends up leaning on Kane. And these are the moments that they're so thoughtful and considerate that these are the moments that Paul is referring to where you go, oh. Everything will be okay. They're so nice together. Yeah, and they're so intense and they're so well observed that they sort of stand out from the rest of it. Okay, I'm going to back up a little bit because I think another shift in attitude towards storytelling has happened over the last 20 to 30 years. 
which is that not just have we started to think about stories in terms of you know what their impact is on people and what the take-home lessons from the way in which people are portrayed are, but we've also started to not expect drama from every single story. People have come to appreciate very, very quiet stories in new ways, I think. Imagine a sort of a walking man type story that this author wrote where it was just a really lovely relationship that she felt no obligation to add drama, no obligation to add any sort of pathos, and was just depicting two people deeply in love with each other in little vignettes. It would be amazing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It it would have been so refreshing, and I think those are the stories we see emerge today, like you mentioned, because we, we don't expect everything to be five different incredibly traumatic story plots in one story. I've left a note somewhere saying uh, this author reminds me of 14 year old me oh, i used to yes. think that like good writing was sort of like putting my characters through the worst hell i could imagine and then portraying that somehow N- never really thought about it that consciously but i just lent in that direction like all my characters were dark and tortured and had horrendous backstories and so i've had to confront this in myself several times as a teen, I loved making these super edgelords, like my chemical romance, step aside. It was so deep, dark, and mysterious. <laughs> and then as I got into my 20s, and especially my 30s, I was like, no, that is not what I gravitate towards. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, because I do think it's an experimental phase where, especially teenagers, really gravitate towards the brooding stuff. And if you do as an adult, that's also completely fine. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about that. I have edgy stuff I still love to this day. But there's just no finesse and through line with it and reading this i had a similar note in my head that i didn't jot down that was like hmm yes i see where i got a lot of ideas of my characters having to go through actual fucking hell to be a decent oc if this is what the average story was like back then then <laughs> yeah 100 <100%. laughs> percent um man so are we are we ready to get on to volume two i don't know paul are we <laughs> Is anyone ever ready for volume two of this manga? (laughs) So by the end of the first book, Kane and Mel decides to get married. And then the second book opens upon the day of their wedding when they found a church that's willing to wed them. It's just going to be the two of them. They're looking super hella tight in their suits and it's going to be a really good time. Kane's boss even shows up to get it with his wife to document the entire thing by taking photos. He's like, of course I have to be here. Don't you want photos of your wedding day? And my note was, why the fuck aren't the parents here? Because by now they're also more accepting of them. So I found that very weird, but whatever. That's like neither here nor there, I guess. So you think, oh my god, this second book is going to be about the two of them finally getting a healthy emotional journey together and they're going to work through their kinks. Uh, Nope! Serial killer time, dude! We're just going to fucking go into procedural serial killer story where right after these two get wed, Mel and Kane has a phone conversation together where Mel is like, I just had to tell you I love you. And Kane's like, okay, I really appreciate that. And then he disappears for over 30 days because he's kidnapped by this infamous serial killer called something as ridiculous as Joey Klein. And he has an MO of kidnapping blonde, beautiful people, men and women, in the most brutal way, severing limbs and everything and dumping them all around the place. He's been almost caught several times. And there's this FBI chick, I think she's FBI anyway, now I suddenly don't remember, I think she's FBI, who's dead on his heels all the time, just 
willing to almost lose her job to just get him behind bars. In the most bizarre and professional way, she involves Kane directly in this process. So he's still a working policeman, even though it's his freaking husband that has been kidnapped by this dude. And just, holy shit, it's just derailed so fast, Paul. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. I cannot. I just... I just don't know how to even start with this volume. I've left a note on page 78. Kane is saying, why, why, why is something so terrible happening? He's been sort of kind of effectively crying on the floor because he knows that Kane has been kidnapped or is missing. We were finally happy. And I've written a note saying, because you are in this batshit crazy story. (laughs) And this is actually on the previous page where he punches off the mom, and then the mom immediately slaps him back. My note on these pages are a lot of slapping of loved ones. <laughs> That's how you show love, damn it, in the 90s. Okay, so just to kinda, at least for my own sake, burst the biggest elephant bubble in this room. Hopefully you're sitting there chuckling in your beard and going, this sounds obscene, and it is. But then you go into the element of why the serial killer is the serial killer, which... Oh boy, like after all the true crime craze that's been the last couple of years, I never want to see or hear true crime again. I'm so fed up with it. And the way that serial killers are romanticized, especially stuff like Dahmer and Ted Bundy, is just so gross. And this book definitely does that. There's a page where I wrote down on page 192, Mr. Klein, the serial killer, partially undressed, looking towards the viewer. And I'm just going, why make him sexy? (laughs) Because that is something this volume does, is yassify the serial killer, and (laughs) in that same vein, they also try to make him weirdly sympathetic, like, they try to make you as a reader sympathize with him, because he had a horrible, he's that 101 cliche serial killer trope of having a traumatic upbringing, and sexual deviancy, and blah blah blah. And then his whole thing with kidnapping people like Mel is that he sees his half-brother in these people who, in his youth, left him because they were living together. And then eventually his little brother had enough of him because he was a very difficult person. And on the day he left him, he then died in an accident. So the serial killer is like, oh yeah, he died because he left me. And now I'm gonna abduct these people. And then I'm gonna have sex with them and pretend they're my brother. Dude, why? <laughs> like, why? There's so much going on here. Yeah, I mean, it just... What's weird is that there are elements of this sort of, like, true crime thing. If it, Let's imagine we took Mel out and we took out, took out the yassification of the serial killer. There are parts of this that would feel like a real legit procedural story, like specifics about how they track him down and the way that you construct a criminal profile of a serial killer. And one note that I've made, it's just really funny that you mention how the author inappropriately romanticizes the serial killer, because the author then, later in the story, in page 362, takes a dig at popular media that romanticizes serial killers by saying that there was a book written about the serial killer after all the the events of the book play out. A few years later, the book was adapted into the film. It turned Joey Klein into a tragic hero. No matter how tragic his life was, he was absolutely not a hero. Yeah, and then you're sitting there as the reader going, okay, but then why on... And let me shuffle for this because I don't remember what... I have a note, but... I will find this page because it made me go, where 
you actually get to see Klein again rape Mel because that's Mel's only purpose in this series is to be sexually assaulted. And it's shown like a yaoi sex scene. It's incredibly uncomfortable. It makes it seem erotic in a way. It's really bizarre. I know the one you mean, yeah, because it sort of echoes stylistically the way that the author portrays Mel and Kane having sex, which, yeah, was really uncomfortable. I'm not sure whether to interpret this whole story as just what she thinks is dramatic or whether it's some sort of deeply disturbing personal wank bank. I don't know. I found the page. It's page 206 is where the killer molests Mel. And it's two panels where the killer looks very into it. And then sadly, because of the typical tropes of Yaoi, Mel can also easily read like enjoying it because that sad UK face is a very common theme in sex scenes. Yeah. In volume one, where Mel gets sexually assaulted by the bank robber, it is very, like, cut and dry. You understand immediately that's what's going to happen. You would have understood it even with the tacked-on dialogue that he's like, oh my god, are you a homophobe to his partner because he's questioning his need to molest someone in the middle of a robbery? And then it kind of just cuts out. You never have to see the act itself, which I personally think is a more elegant way of handling such a difficult thing than this weird as incestuous portrayal that is in in the second book. All of the scenes where you actually get to see Mel's incarceration and kidnapping and the things that he goes through, including watching three people get killed in front of him, uh, just strike me as like utterly egregious. There's no reason for them to be there. You could understand by inference what he'd been through if he just gets found at a particular point. It drags on so long, and I'm sure some people would argue that that makes it exciting, but there was a point where I didn't make a note of it in the book, but there's a, a point where this has gone full procedural and you just see a bunch of FBI people talk together and there's more text than art on the pages, which is very uncommon for manga. And I just thought, ah, oh, there's too much talking. And I actually stopped reading. I just started skimming because I was like, this is so, it's, it's too much. I don't need this. It's really fucking boring. And it's just like pulling out this painful thing that's going on right now. And my general note for this volume was kind of a bit like the first one. There's something here. Like, I think there's actually a really tense procedural drama about hunting down a serial killer here. It's just completely hampered by the fact that you know absolutely that Kane's going to find Mel again. There's never going to be a question about that. And so everything else is filler. And the fact that there's no tension in the end because you see exactly what's going on every time we flick to Mel's perspective. You know, if the author really wanted to go off and write a procedural drama about hunting down a serial killer, go for it. Just don't make your main character the victim. Again, to, to hark back to what we talked about, that Mel has already gone through so much. He was sexually abused as a child as well. Like, this character gets no fucking slack. He, I guess, partially had to, partially chose to become what they referred to in the book as a streetwalker. I don't know if that's actual a term for prostitutes. I've never heard it, so I'm not going to say if that's right or wrong. But it was new to me anyway. Yeah, the way they're using it in the book, I've never heard the slang before, but it's specifically to indicate somebody who doesn't work out of a brothel or with a specific pimp or something, somebody who just li literally wanders the street and says, I'll have sex with you for cash. Okay. Again, I don't know. I've never heard the term, so. That's at least the path that he goes down, is becoming a streetwalker and giving his body away for shelter, for food, 
what have you, because he effectively turns homeless for a while. So basically, and I can't stress this enough, I'm not saying that people who sell sex are all in this situation and it's awful, but for this specific character, it's pretty clear that if he could have chosen another path, he would have. It's just another coin on this trauma bank to just have an altogether awful life. His abuse continues in this circumstance, and then he escapes into a relationship with like a, a mega creepy looking old professor, which is relatively decent compared to the rest of his life, and then he goes into all of the stuff with Kane, and then he gets like raped in the middle of a robbery with a dead body next to him, and then he gets kidnapped by a serial killer. Uh, I mean, what, what takes the cake, and I don't know if you've read this, is at the back there's the quote-unquote special backstory in the New York, New York extras. Did you read this? Full disclosure, by the time I got to this, I was kind of ready to chuck this volume across the balcony and never look back because I was just so infuriated for even more notes that we're getting to to the end. So I skimmed through it. It was the profiles on all of his quote-unquote lovers, right? Yes, it just like what really takes the cake is this particular bit from the introduction from the author, by the way. This is hearing the author's voice directly saying, people have told me I should draw a manga about Mel's past. Unfortunately, his past is a series of tragedies, one after another. It would not be a fun manga to read. So I've decided to spill all the details like this instead. Some of the... so sorry for fucking losing it but how can you lack the inside <laughs> to say that oh that would be too sad so i'm just gonna have him fucking kidnapped and molested and threatened and dead people and oh my god oh it just did again you know like we're not laughing because the subject no, matter is no, funny no, no, we're no, laughing no, no. at the author it's so tone deaf <laughs> oh my god that is, that is, I wish I had read that, but I'm also glad you told it to me, so my reaction is so authentic. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the wonderful pile of nonsense that is volume two. Have you got any specific notes on this beyond just like, <laughs> ah. I feel like I've already touched upon so many, but some of my notes are serial ki killer exposition dump. Why is Kane even on this case? Too personally involved. Involving an ancestral serial killer in a yaoi is such a choice. Too much talking. Suddenly a procedural drama. And then my favorite note is that <laughs> volume two felt like the meme of the car on the highway who takes a hard right to get off the highway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. I've already mentioned this. I've got like a note here on 368. Uh, Self-aggrandizing much? This is the, uh, the actual text about the novel. A Matthew Ryan's novel about Kane and Mel, New York, New York, started a small movement. Major bookstores featured it prominently in their windows for a long while. Its name went down in history as one of the masterpieces of the gay scene. I was just like, is this how you see yourself? Is this what you wanted for New York, New York? Because holy crap. Oh, that is fucking wild. This should actually be thought as a masterclass in the, the don'ts and the don'ts of creating yeah. a story. Do research, be mindful, be respectful, be cautious, especially when it's not your scene. It's very different if this had been made by a gay man and he clearly wanted to work through whatever he felt the need to work through. But the fact that this, again, is made by a Japanese woman makes me go, 
I don't know, dude. Because the setting is in New York, New York, her ethnicity doesn't matter in any other instance. It's just that the fact that it's also in a completely different country. So the lack of research is just so visible. <laughs> One of the many lol-worthy notes I took just to once again bring it all back to Kane being a questionable character is that while the FBI lady that he works with, which I've completely just erased the name of in my head, they're out searching for clues, Scooby-Doo style, and they know that the serial killer uses a specific weapon for basically butchering his victims. So they're looking for axes, so they go to different stores trying to, you know, as, as you do, looking for the, the tools of the action. The lady says, If we assume it's an axe, we can narrow our search to places that use firewood or demolition sites. You'll find hatches in a lot of garages, right? And then Kane, mastermind genius Kane, says... And if it's a cleaver, we can look for restaurants with Chinese chefs. Um... <laughs> um... Detective? What the fuck, dude? I couldn't decide if that was snark or whether he was actually being serious. But again, but that, that says something about the level of the writing, that it's really hard to tell when the characters are joking with each other and when they're being serious because there's no consistency to break. No, I, I think he's 100% serious because then the woman says, seriously, if the weapon were a hamburger, would you be looking for burger joints with American employees? <laughs> okay, okay, which clearly is a joke. Oh, dear. So, so much. I think I, her name is Luna, by the way. Oh, Luna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then, of course, it be, it's revealed down the line, which suddenly makes me go, oh, okay. It, it, the weirdest thing was actually not Kane on this case, because it turns out that Luna is Klein's, the serial killer's, half-sister. When he grew up in a horrible household, it was with her. She has made her life mission to track him down and get him be behind bars because it's personal to her. And once again, I'm sitting here. Has no one flagged that? Has no one done a background check on this woman? Like, what the fuck, dude? I don't even know by the end of the story if her investigation was meant to be legitimate because for a while she's like, oh, hi, I'm an FBI agent. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And Kane goes along with it. And then the actual FBI show up at one point. Two random dudes who are like, we're the FBI, we're taking over this case now. And at no point does the story address the fact that she also claimed to be FBI and doesn't seem to be officially on the case, but is still being consulted about it? I don't know what's going on. As much as we shit on this, and this is by far our meanest episode. Oh yeah, by a long way. <laughs> Sorry to the author if you're out there and listening to this, I doubt you are. No, she would never. She has more respect for herself than that. <laughs> Not once do I actually... It, despite what I said earlier, where I'm never able to differentiate the book's opinions and the author's opinions, not once does these books read as malicious. And that's a wild thing to say about something that handles yeah. every malicious thing under the sun. I 100% believe that the author loves her characters and loves this story and wants to present it with heart, it just completely whiffs the mark. Yeah, and perhaps also thinks that she's doing something really important for gay people and helping people understand that gay people are people too. And maybe there's a certain extent to which, both in a culture that's moved on a lot since the 90s, and it's interesting that in these books, the 90s are already portrayed as a culture that has moved on a lot from earlier times, like kind of 50s or 60s, presumably, that we've got nothing to learn <laughs> from these. Yeah. And, you know, if, if they ever did have something to teach someone, I think you mentioned this before when we were talking about volume one, actually, it's, it's just, you know, in today's culture, they don't, the context is just completely different. It's completely lost. 
that element of storytelling is is kind of fascinating and sort of almost tragic at the same time. An author's passion can get completely buried by the changes in the world. Yeah, and I do think to that extent, it's very important for me to emphasize that I have nothing bad to say about the author herself for this, because I'm able to see that this is such a time capsule. Even though I arrived to this conversation with my pitchfork and I was very upset, it's not a justified rage towards the author. I'm simply distilling the story itself and how clumsy I think that is. And I harbor no ill intent towards the author whatsoever. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction that actually is, especially, you know, in a political climate when often we kind of throw the entire author out with the trash if that makes sense yeah actually if you extrapolate from the way this story is written maybe the author is herself a little horrified at it now if she continued to learn and to expand her own understandings in the same way that she's trying to portray her characters doing it's clear that that kind of personal learning is deeply important to her and she wants to show it being deeply important to her characters And that in and of itself is an indication of somebody who's willing to adapt and learn. And this book and every book written by any author is just a snapshot of them at a particular time. And you can see the difference between an author who doubles down and becomes the snapshot and an author who can be like, yes, this this book is separate from me now and and I'm moving on in some way or another. I think it's important to, to note the difference between those things. There's a note where 302 and 303, where the case has been resolved, because what happens in the end is that they get on the right track of this client character, they hunt him down, and by day, I mean, uh, of course, Kane and Luna, they hunt him down in the woods where he is uh, holed up in a cabin. It ends with a fatal shootout where Klein dies, he's, he's shot by his sister, Mel and Kane tries to move on with their life. Uh, Mel needs extensive therapy, and I was almost surprised to see that this was a thing, that they actually give this poor fucking boy some therapy, because I wouldn't have been surprised if the next page Kane is complaining about not getting sex again. Yeah, I was presently surprised to see he was actually traumatized by his experience, rather yeah. than being kind of like random return to complete blank that uh, that you get sometimes with characters. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of journalists showing up outside their house, Asking them incredibly fucking heinous questions. And my note was overtly cruel. Uh, Oh yeah, simmers in gay suffering is what I've written. The the Uh, journalists are... Again, this is where I do believe people are capable of being this awful. We just need to look at the current climate against trans people to see that people are absolutely capable of being this trash. But in the context of this story, it once again, it feels so bizarre how one journalist says so you're mr Uh, frederick's lover are you aware of the rumors during a chance encounter degenerate homosexual mel frederick seduced joey klein mel got what was coming to him well that's just what homophobes are saying but please at least can you comment on these rumors mr walker and i'm just i'm sitting here like pardon it it does almost like that the author feels it's necessary to dig up and portray all the shit that she possibly can (laughs) in order to make things sort of worthy or meaningful. I do see when you see waves of reaction to kinds of fiction move through online circles in a way that you couldn't see back in the 90s because people just weren't online enough. 
I have seen over the last like 15 years or so this kind of movement from tragic gay fiction to a pushback from the audience like I don't want this shit anymore show me something nice to finally we're just starting to see the very beginnings of you know just a normal gay relationship depicted with no recourse to all the trauma that someone's had to go through or how terrible it was to come out or just outright death (laughs) in lots of cases. It almost feels to me in this story as if the author is kind of pitching the gays against the world. Just see, see how awful the entire world is. See how everybody hates you. I don't though, because you're my gay little babies and I'll take care of you. But everybody else Mm. detests you. And that's such a mean thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And again, unconsciously so. Yeah. You know, with bizarrely well-meaning, but bizarrely catastrophic results. (laughs) Yeah. Towards the end of the story, Mel and Kane decides to adopt a daughter who, I don't remember how old she's supposed to be when she's adopted, but let's say like five years or something. Mm. And this is where I wrote in my notes, my only word is crack babies exclamation mark question mark because <laughs> if you if you thought that they couldn't cram in more 90s jacked up trophy shit she is the result of her mother being a quote-unquote floozy and sleeping around while on the the heroin so whatever she was doing and then got this kid and of course then she is the the infamous crack baby it's just like okay so <laughs> Hear me out here, Mrs. Author. Not only are your main characters suffering, but their adopted child also has to suffer. Okay, I get it. There's just no happiness in this universe. (laughs) I I add to that that Mel dies tragic and early. We don't, thankfully, get to see that played out in excruciating detail. It's handled in in a sort of a post-script way, almost. And I'd kind of predicted that. I actually thought, okay, my... If I was to have finished volume one and to have laid bets about what was going to happen in volume two, I thought that it was going to be 300 pages of Mel dying of AIDS, to put it bluntly. Oh my god. And in a way, I'm glad I wasn't subjected to that. But would you have preferred that over this story on steroids? I don't know. I mean, it it could have been well handled, but then that's the story of this book, isn't it? It could have been well handled. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you also feel that, because this was one of my final comments, first, the shrink needs to get a new job. They are basically the shrink from Psycho from 1960, where they do a full exposition dump about Mel's trauma way too late into the book, mind you. And also telling it out of confidentiality to Kane. So I I was just sitting here going, my guy, you need a new profession because this is breaking all sorts of confidentialities. And then my final note was that the daughter that they adopt in this incredible fast-forward wrapping up of the story, which I think is so unnecessary, is that she feels like in self-insert. Because her introduction is that, oh, Oh. I thought Kane was so cool and handsome and I felt so safe with him. And then Mel was like the really beautiful, sensitive one. I was like, what the fuck kind of Twilight jacked up shit is this? Oh, yeah. And actually, there's something I wanted to sort of like bring up because I see this in Japanese media over and over and over again, and I don't experience it anywhere else. Oh, mummy. Oh, daddy. This is usually with very, very young characters. I'm going to marry you when I grow up. And it always just makes me stop in my tracks and go, (laughs) what is wrong? (laughs) 
do, do children ever really say this? This oh, oh my god! If we had like huge audience, I would love to do a poll. Not that it, because it would remain uh, anonymous. Like, how many of you out there ever had the dream as a child to marry one of your parents? Because fuck Freud, but that sounds like some Freudian stuff to me. Yeah, or or heard your sort of eight year old say that completely innocently or something. Like, I just don't. I don't have any basis by which to think that it actually really happens, but it, it happens all the time in manga. This was one of my first and only introduction to it, so I went, excuse me, what, what on earth is this weird thing among all the other weird things in the ending? Yep, yep. That whole, and the, the whole way it handles her growing up is just slightly odd as well. It, it almost made me want to read it in Animal Crossing voice, where everything is like... Because that's the, <laughs> the pace of which this skyrockets into the stratosphere. If you thought there were weird pacing earlier, it's just like... And then they live happily after after. It suddenly turns into this weird fairy tale nonsense. Yeah, very strange, isn't it? It's, I, and I have to say, this has just been one of the... And I've said it several times already. It's been one of the wildest reading experiences I've ever had. So... Um, uh, for all the wrong reasons, thank you for introducing me to this book. <laughs> so I both feel terrible, but I'm also, after having, because this is our 10th episode, and after having nine other episodes that we've gone in with the effort to try to be very baseline and never be mean and never be unnecessarily critical, this, I just knew from the moment I started reading it, it would be a no-hold bar, so we would just go off the hinges because there's I mean, I'm sure there is a way to discuss these books civilized and in a much more professional sense than we've just done during these two last hours, but I personally needed this. If I can be so selfish to to just come clean, I needed this. I feel like, uh, especially given what we were texting each other, uh, we clearly desperately wanted to talk about this book and have been holding it in. And you've been holding it in for longer than I have because you finished earlier. So <laughs> I can't imagine... He told me that you couldn't go to sleep after you read it the first time. Because I did the big mistake, uh, because it started feeling like a chore. I wasn't having fun with the second book at all. The first one, I... It it feels like risque business to say that I enjoyed any of this, but if we can say that all horrible stuff aside, I was at least remotely entertained by the first book, and I was at times invested, as we touched upon several times. The second book, I was just like, uh, just let it end. So I started like skimming texts and stuff, which is a big sign that I'm not entertained. And I did this in bed because I just wanted to end the day on having wrapped this up so I could wake up the next day with a clean slate. It was not the good brain food to end a day on with a dude getting kidnapped and molested by this weirdly homoerotic serial killer. It left a very ooby-dooby taste in my mouth. I am not surprised, as you put it. Not rose tinted glasses, but black outlines, which uh, really made me laugh. <laughs> oh boy. So, in two weeks, we'll be talking about fake, which you've already said is a big personal, important thing for you from, from your childhood and another, not childhood, from your teenagerdom, presumably, and uh, another uh, example of the yaoi genre that we've talked about. I'm really excited to read this. I have a little bit of contact 
with it, but I can remember nothing. Fake I'm much more terrified about because this is something I held in very high regards for the longest time because fake truly shaped me and we will get much more into this in the next episode. This one has already been going on for a long bad year because we decided to read the three first volumes. The entire thing is seven volumes, but that's a lot to get through in two weeks. So we settled on going on three because we already did four of New York, New York, which is also much more than we usually do. I don't think it handles all the... Not nearly all the very, very heavy stuff that New York, New York dived into headfirst. It's going to be really interesting to read fake. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Same. Same with dread. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll see you for that. Yeah. Talk in two weeks. Yes. Bye. Bye. So next week, then, we're reading No, 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 no. Fake. Not next oh. week. No. I don't do this on purpose, I promise you. The it's worst not is like now I'm you're making me paranoid. The... I think I said next week about fake too, so, you know. It's oh, got, maybe you did. I think. I didn't notice. <laughs> me neither, because I was probably on a tangent and I didn't want to lose it, which my ADHD brain does all the time. So I was just like, right. go through with it. But if I did, then whatever. Whatever.